In Genesis 34 here, we've got the account of uh, Dinah, and you can uh, really subtitle this uh, Two Wrongs Don't Make a Right, because they really don't. Uh, but just before we, we go on a look at the moral side of it, um, just the, the simple lesson, I suppose, that comes out of a young, uh, I guess, teenage, it would seem, uh, daughter from a girl from a believing family going out into the world into let's say an uncontrolled unsupervised environment and what begins as curiosity very quickly descends into serious failure with uh, with lifelong consequences now <clears throat> the, the the whole uh, account here I think is in keeping with a theme that we have throughout Genesis that the Abraham family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and the twelve sons of Jacob they are pretty weak and they are really no better in fact they are often worse than the peoples around them now I think you, you see that pretty clearly here because the, the the Bible is written in such a way that it it requires from us our response in, in judging, not in judging in, in the ultimate sense of course, but in deciding right and wrong and in thinking about motives and was that sin, was that righteousness, why exactly might he have done that, uh, etc. And here I'm afraid you, you see a, a serious uh, act of, of failure by Simeon and Levi in, in what they do and also in Dinah right at the start and yet it's sort of done in the name of uh, vengeance, it's done in the name of, well, you know, we don't want our uh, sister being involved with those people, these people are just mere Gentiles, we can carry on as we like, etc. And yet I, I think the, the chapter leaves us really at the end with the impression that Hamor and the people of Shechem have in fact behaved themselves in a far more upright manner than what the, the believers did, the, the family of believers did. Because really Simeon and Levi, as Jacob really seems to say in chapter 49 <clears throat> at the end of his life <clears throat> when he blesses Simeon and Levi, he, he says, you know, you've got a huge anger problem. And that's pretty clearly what happened here. Because they, they talk about what happened to her uh, in the last verse there, 31, should he deal with our sister as with a prostitute? Well, <laughs> no. The, the, the chapter is at great pains to show that Hamor does not treat her as a prostitute. Uh, look at verse 3. He loved the young lady and spoke kindly to her. This is not, uh, this is not using a prostitute. And then he says to his father, uh, Get, uh, get me, please, this young lady as a wife. And he goes, uh, Hamor talks with the, the family and says, The soul of my son, my son Shechem, verse 8, longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife, and uh, we'll pay whatever dowry you decide. Verse 12, ask me a great amount for a dowry, and I will give whatever you ask of me. Now, this is not the same at all as using a woman as a prostitute. It seems to me that uh, within the context of the situation, Shechem and his father Hamor act really with, with integrity given the situation. And it is the family of believers who do not act with such integrity. Now, I think what that is meant to highlight to us is that the family of believers here are really not... Um, 
are, are not really good living righteous people. I mean, looking at the, uh, the genealogies, uh, it's actually recorded that Simeon had a child by a Canaanite woman. So, I mean, there he was sleeping around with, uh, with, with the local inhabitants, uh, etc., uh, and even having a child. And so the, the, the reaction, really, of Jacob's family, or Simeon and Levi, is really quite out of proportion with what had happened. They got it in their head that Dinah had been raped, and the word that they use several times about what happened uh, seems to imply that. And that's why some people talk about the rape of Dinah, but I don't really see that it, uh, it was rape as such, and his subsequent behaviour, I think, indicates that it, it wasn't. And yet they got this idea in their mind, and there's a great lesson there for us, that once you get an idea in your mind about somebody's motives when they do something that you don't like, you can keep dwelling on it until you become convinced that was the case, and you therefore judge them far more harshly than you should, and you end up, in essence, being no better than them, even worse than them. And it's the same, really, with the brothers lying later about Joseph when they tell their father that he's dead, and even when they're at their extremity, bowing before Joseph, not realizing it was Joseph uh, in Egypt, they say, well, you know, we had a, a brother, but he's dead. And they had told the lie so many times that they came to think that that was the case. And that this is the trouble with our self-talk, that if you, you know, we all talk to ourselves, uh, if in your self-talk you imagine motives and you keep on brooding upon these imaginary motives and exaggerating behavior of others, uh, you end up becoming genuinely persuaded that that is the case and doing things which are really quite inappropriate and sinful and wrong in judgment of what you perceive happened when it actually didn't. Now it would be one thing if they went there and uh, grabbed their, their sister and uh, Maybe there might have been a bit of violence as they grabbed her, etc. But they do more than that. I mean, looking here in uh, 27, they came on the dead. They plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. Well, no. <laughs> you don't plunder a city because they defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, 28, whatever was in the field, and all their wealth, verse 29 and they took captive all their little ones and their wives, and I wonder what they did with, with the wives. They took as plunder everything that was in the house. Now, later on in chapter 49, you might just like to turn over there, um, when Jacob comments on this incident. He says, uh, 49 verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers, their swords are weapons of violence. He criticizes their use of the sword. And of course, back in chapter 34, verse 25, Simeon and Levi each took his sword and came upon the city. It was Esau who was told that he would live by the sword. <clears throat> so they're really uh, acting like, uh, like Esau, like the one who was not chosen to be part of the ultimate uh, family of God. And Jacob goes on in chapter 49, and he says, verse 6, in their self-will they hamstrung cattle. So they didn't only just grab a few cattle, they hamstrung some of those that they presumably couldn't take away with them. 
And he says, Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. And he basically says, I am not associated with them uh, because of what they did. And this was, of course, some years previously, when J Jacob is now on his deathbed, saying these words. So th there was an extreme anger problem with these two guys. And what they did was absolutely over the top. And how many times have we seen this? People with anger issues taking it out, taking that anger out in religious terms. Disfellowshipping people, making divisions, upholding them, driving people out of ecclesias, etc. These people have just got anger problems and it's as simple as that. And yet they think, ah, this is something to do with the truth. This is something to do with my service of God. Therefore, I am justified in this anger. This is righteous anger, all this kind of thing. I mean, you know, I, I've been sworn at by supposedly senior brethren using pretty bad expletives. And uh, it's not that I, I look for an apology, but what I've been told is, ah, oh, it was righteous anger. Uh, it's not righteous anger. You, you, you don't behave like that because of your supposed love for God. This is just a, a confusing of motives to justify our natural position. And that Jacob realizes that. Now, the point is being made here that actually their behavior was worse than that of the surrounding world. And as I said, that is a theme in the book of Genesis. You see this with the incidents with uh, Abraham and Isaac lying about their wives and uh, telling the uh, Abimelech that, no, no, it's not really my wife, you're free to have her, kind of thing, giving that impression and then being caught out and reproved. I mean, Abraham does this twice. And in each of those incidents, it seems to me that the Abimelech comes over as a man of far greater integrity than, than Abraham. And you see it again, I think, in the story of, or in the account of Jacob and Esau, that Esau, although he was clearly not uh, a man with a heart for God, let's say, he comes over as having far greater integrity, far greater honesty than, than Jacob. He forgives Jacob, it seems, at the end, um, or when, you know, when they meet, um, and Jacob's all scared that Esau's going to have it out with him, and you know, Esau just sort of says, oh, forget it, mate, you know and play on. And, you know, Jacob's deceit, I think, comes over pretty strongly in the record compared to Esau's, well, just simply worldly-mindedness. Um, but not a bad bloke, as would be said. This is a big theme, and I could talk quite a bit about this in the context of the whole story in Genesis. Um, and the the bottom line is that the family of believers are painted as being of far less integrity and acting far worse than people in the world. And that, of course, happens today. And it's a reason why some people turn away from faith. They say, oh, but look at all those hypocrites. It's a reason why some people have turned away from any religion based upon, as Paul puts it, the hope of Israel. Because they say, well, look at Israel, look at the Jewish people. They have not set exactly much of a model example. In fact, uh, and I, of all people, I'm not uh, anti-Jewish saying this, but it is a fact that so many Jewish people have seriously misbehaved uh, in, in their lives. And that should not be, I think, a reason to turn away from God because of the behavior or perceived hypocrisy of his people. 
rather I think we see open before us God's grace that he does not choose the righteous you know, Jesus said this that he has come to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance and this is how God loves to work it's the hallmark I would say of how he works that he he uses and calls the very weakest people those who are morally weak physically weak spiritually weak weak in every way psychologically weak demon possessed the the mentally disturbed the, the fragile etc this is his hallmark this is his way of working he chose the smallest and weakest I would say morally of all nations the, the, the family of Abraham and, and Jacob Israel to, to work with them and through them and that theme that he has and how he works continues today because the people through whom it seems to me that God works the most are very often uh, obscure delicate fragile weak individuals compared to those around them in the world now this is not in any sense a justification for sin or moral laxity or failure or whatever but by saying this I'm just observing what I think you can't fail to really pick up in a sensitive reading of, of the book of Genesis and just thinking about how God works all the way through so as I say it's not an encouragement for us to just give up and be slack and sloppy and weak but it is a comfort when we think who am I both physically intellectually spiritually morally psychologically I'm so weak give me a temptation pretty good chance if I got to go to the right or the left I'm afraid I'll turn to the left now that that's bad but that that doesn't mean that God's through with you you know God loves those kinds of people and he works through them this is this is it I mean it really is and it's therefore a, I think a parade example of God's grace that this is how he works but people who maybe don't have a heart for God love to say ah yeah well look at all the religious people all the Christian people uh, they're hypocrites now there's much nicer people out in the world who don't even believe in God yeah absolutely right and that's what we're reading here in Genesis that observation is right but the question is and what do you do with that fact do you therefore turn away from God's love that we see in the gift of his son that he gave his only begotten son the record of the gospel uh, to die, suffer, be abused die in, in pain and crucifixion naked because of us no, how can we turn around and say yeah well you did that but that's not for me because your people uh, are hypocrites or there's atheists in the world who are nicer than them no <clears throat> that argument, and you know, I hear it so often, is totally irrelevant. What you're missing is that, yes, you're correct in your observation, but that is a parade example of God's grace. And of course, if those people would only think about themselves a little bit more, they would realize that they too are the weak. And God also wants to have them in, in his family and to work with them something else that they do here which I, I find most reprehensible really is that they say oh yeah you know you can be circumcised and then sure you we can all be one people well circumcision was the unique sign of connection with God's people it was the unique sign of the covenant and they said 
yeah, well, you do the same, and then you can all be part of God's, God's people, and yeah, sure, we'll, we'll all be one, etc. They were abusing the right of circumcision very clearly to get the men all weak, and then they jumped on them while they were weak and, and knifed them to death. Now, this is a terrible abuse of circumcision, and in, in our uh, generation it seems to me that circumcision is similar in that sense to baptism, well, this is the sign of the, the covenant, of entry into the covenant. And to abuse that in any way, I think, is uh, extremely displeasing to God. Uh, to get people baptized for the wrong motives, or etc., or demand that people are baptized when it's clear that that's not what they really want to do and their heart is not in it. Um, you know, if, if your boyfriend's not baptized and you marry him, we're going to chuck you out of the church. So basically, you better get him under the water. But this is uh, absolutely wrong, to, to my thinking anyway. And in essence, I think it, it is a, a continuation of the, the error that was made here by Simeon and Levi. Though, of course, you, you notice that on the side of the Shechemites, they say to each other, oh yeah, come on, let's, let's, let's make marriages with them, because then we'll be one people, and all that they've got shall be ours. And, of course, this point is made a number of times in the warnings later on in the Law of Moses about don't marry uh, Gentiles, that they will, in the end, turn your heart away, and you will no longer be God's people, but you'll be their people. And, you know, I'm I have to say that marriage out of the faith has got to be seen for what it is, and the consequences very, very often are exactly as the people of Shechem imagined that they would be. So then, <clears throat> they, they go and do this. They have this huge anger problem that we see more about in Genesis 49. And how does the story finish? Well, it's a bit of a cliffhanger, really, isn't it, at the end, because they were just a small uh, group of people, a tribe, and there they were, wandering around in a country that wasn't really theirs. It's pretty obvious that now all those surrounding nations are going to get furious and are going to jump on them and kill the lot of them. And so Jacob says in chapter 34, verse uh, 30, you have troubled me to make me odious to the inhabitants of the land. I, being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house or, or family. Notice all the personal pronouns there. I mean, Jacob's bleeding away, really, in, in, uh, in, in a great show, I think, really, of self-centeredness. I shall be destroyed. They will gather themselves together against me and slay me, I and my house, etc. And really, he's losing sight yet again of the implications of the promises that God had made to him and to Abraham and Isaac, that through him there was to come a line that would end in a singular seed. We know that that was to be Jesus, and that his house, his descendants, were to be great and to fill the earth. And now he says, ah, oh, now all these surrounding nations are going to come and kill me and destroy me, verse 30, and my house and my family, my progeny. I'm going to be cut off out of history because of what you did, because the nations around us are going to jump on us and kill the lot of us, every single one of us, etc. Now, 
in moments of crisis we all do the same, the implications of the promises to Abraham that have been also made to us because we've been baptized into the Lord Jesus, uh, we can forget them so easily, so terribly easily, by thinking, oh no, you know, that's it, that, that, that's finished, um, I'm not going to be in the kingdom, God is not blessing me, he will not bless me, etc. And unfortunately, we can all be like Jacob and become totally self-centered. And yet, if we really think through the implications of the covenant relationship we are in, then I hope that we should rise above those kind of feelings uh, when crises like this arise. And so what happens at the end of 34 leaves us at a bit of a cliffhanger, really. So do the surrounding nations gather themselves together? <coughs> well, Jacob, in the first part of chapter 35, appeals to his family, who he feared were going to be destroyed. Verse 2, he said to his household, or to his house, who he feared in chapter 34, verse 30, were all to be destroyed. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves. So clearly they, they were idolatrous, and he calls them to repentance. He throws himself upon God, uh, because he knows this is the only way. And God, I think, encourages him in that, because he says to him in 35 verse 1, Go up to Bethel, and live there, and make there an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. Now when he was there the first time, when he fled from Esau and he laid his head down on a pillow and God makes promises to him, he responds, in my opinion, rather skeptically. He says, if you will be with me, then Yahweh shall be my God. If you are with me, then I will pay you a tenth of all that I have. But not until then, and only a tenth. And um, it struck me as rather, rather stingy. And it's as if God is calling him on that promise that he'd made to him and say look and says look act as if i have in fact preserved you from the thing that you're worried about which is annihilation at the hands of these these tribes and do what you promised and god is like that he does not force people to be obedient in that sense but he so wants our obedience and our spirituality that he will strongly encourage us he really does and that means that it's not as if God is sort of there in heaven passive waiting for our response to his word and if we don't give it then we don't he is encouraging us to spiritual mindedness and to coming closer and closer into covenant relationship with him and that is I would say what the work of the Holy Spirit is in our days a new holy spirit, a holy mind, a holy mentality, a holy worldview, a worldview, a mind, a psychology that is sanctified, made holy by this psychological influence of God directly upon the human heart. You see this actually in verse 5, how the, the story finally ends. So they travelled, and a terror of God was on the cities that were around them, and they didn't pursue the sons of Jacob. So again, we have there one of many examples, almost on every page of the Bible, of where God works directly on human hearts. Humanly speaking, they were doomed that the surrounding cities were going to jump on them and punish them for what they'd done to Shechem. But something stops them. 
there was something that was sent by God upon them. There was some psychological barrier that he put into their hearts and minds. Now, if God is capable of working directly on human hearts, even on the hearts of unbelievers, how much more is he willing and eager to work upon our hearts and minds? And there we are, as weak people, but all the same as people who love him, opening ourselves up to his influence, saying, yes, please, in my weakness, work with me and work upon me and give me a new heart. 